you may have heard in the last uh, week or so, Jose Salvador Alvarenga was in the news again. Now you're probably wondering, wait, who? Okay, let me tell you. Jose Salvador Alvarenga was and is the man from San Salvador who washed ashore in the Marshall Islands. That's right, if you remember anything about high school, junior high geography, there's a big distance between those two places, okay? In San Salvador, actually it was Mexico. Mexico in the Marshall Islands, back in January, he washed ashore stark naked, clutching a knife, screaming out in Spanish to those who found him, about how he had spent the last, now he had lost track of time, but from what we can gather, if this true, the story is true, some 13 months afloat in the Pacific Ocean, surviving only on fish and turtle blood, sharks, small birds, dew, and rainwater. Now, understandably, there is some skepticism, some doubt as to whether or not, you know, is this story true? But the further they go into investigating it, it seems that, yeah, it just might be true that this man survived 13 months adrift in the Pacific Ocean, drifting from Mexico to the Marshall Islands. It's a stunning story. I tell, I tell you, he's back in the news because he was just discharged from the hospital for the second time. He is having a hard time recovering uh, from all that that mentally and physically uh, did to him. It's a terrible thing to be lost. It's a terrible thing to be adrift. And by this, I'm not just speaking now of the open sea. I'm talking about life. It's a terrible thing to be lost and it's a terrible thing to be adrift, to not know meaning, to not know purpose, to have no grasp and understanding and firm conviction about what direction to take and how to make decisions, even on a day-to-day -day basis. It's a terrible thing to be lost. If I can shift the metaphor now from the open sea to the open road, we are all, if you will, on a road trip. And there's this road out before us. And there are many places, many exits that you can take along that, that road. And many twists and many turns. And you've got to decide. And in this case, in this, with this road trip, the stakes are very high. Higher than many of us, than most people, ever stop to consider. This is not just, oh, whatever. The stakes could not be higher in terms of the direction and our understanding and the purpose and the meaning and how to live accordingly. So what do we do? Where do we go? Well, we go to God's Word. The one safe place we can go for answers as significant as this. So if you have your Bible now, I would ask you to turn with me to the book of Philippians. It's a letter, actually, uh, written by the Apostle Paul while he was imprisoned um, under house arrest, chained to a Roman centurion, a member of the Praetorian Guard, roughly 60 A.D., from Rome to the church in Philippi. If you're trying to find it, it is in your New Testament. It's after the Gospels and Acts. It's in the flow of the letters that we have after Romans and the Corinthian letters and Galatians and Ephesians you hit what we call the book of, but really the letter of, Paul to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. 
is where we are. I'm going to pick up right where we left off last week in verse, the second half of verse 18. So Philippians 1, second part of verse 18. Hear now God's holy word. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let's pray together. Lord, in the words of the, the psalmist in Psalm 1, oh, that we could be like the tree planted by those streams of water that yields its fruit in its season with leaves that, that never wither. And all that we do, oh, that we would prosper in that richest sense of what he means there. Oh, we just cannot stand the, the idea of being like the chaff that the wind would drive away. You meant so much more for us. We ask that you would dig up the soil of our hearts and help us to hear and plant the good seed of your word now that we might be fruitful, that we might indeed find life, that it would take root and the shoots would grow up high and strong. For your praise, not ours, not even for our sakes, not even for our comfort and convenience sake, not even that it would go better for us, but Lord, for your glory, for your honor, for your name's sake, may we prove to be fruitful. So we commit this study to you in these few minutes to you now. Amen. Air Force One, not the plane, the movie. Air Force One, some of you may have seen it a few years ago. Uh, the President of the United States, his, uh, played by Harrison Ford, so he's the coolest president ever. Um, uh, the President of the United States, his, his, air, his official aircraft is hijacked and he is taken prisoner by some terrorists, but not to worry because He's Harrison Ford. So he's got former military training. And so one by one, he takes out the terrorists. Well, all except for one. I'll hold on, I'll come back to that in a minute. But the, the, the crisis is not over. Because in the, the flow of events, it's not G-rated. In the flow of events, the only people on board this plane who have the training to land this plane are all dead. So now what do you do? The plane is thousands of feet up in the air. Eventually it's got to come down. What do you do? Well, the, the Air Force comes up with this idea. They send up a military transport plane. Could this work? No, okay. Um, 
don't, we don't want to listen to him. For right now, it works. Okay, so you send up this military transport plane, and you have Air Force One flying in a parallel course, and you shoot out a zip line. I know. I, it's the movie. And between the two, and one by one, the passengers zip on over to safety over onto this transport plane. Well, that's the plan, and in the movie, it works. Right up to the end, and the president, of course, because he's Harrison Ford, says, no, no, you go, you go. The whole crew, of all the passengers, are over on this plane except for him and this one last guy who, and here's the spoiler, you think he's his trusted Secret Service agent. He's actually the last terrorist. And so the struggle ensues, and Air Force One goes down into the ocean. Now, those back on the ground listening to this whole thing and watching the radar are panicking because all they can see from the radar is Air Force One is down. And so they're waiting and they're waiting and they're very anxious and they're very worried until they hear the words from the flight crew on that transport plane, Liberty 2-4 is changing call signs. Liberty 2-4 is now Air Force One because the president had made it on board that plane. That's quite a, a, a shift, however realistic this is. That's quite a shift of status, right? Um, of status and identity, if I can put it that, well, that way, for a military transport, a car, basically a cargo plane. It, it changes, of course, the outlook of now how you're going to fly, and maybe even where you can fly in, too. The gospel is like that. It changes everything. It's a transformative message, the gospel. And by that I mean two things. One, it transforms everything and everyone it touches. So at the cosmic level, we know, and we've sung of this, and Colin prompted us on this, Jesus tells us, behold, I am making all things new. And that's coming at the cosmic level. All that's wrong will be made right in this world. And we too, we too have the hope of transformation. As Paul says in Romans 8, the creation groans, we groan, one day both will find that groaning satisfied and met in the finished, final, completed work of Jesus in the salvation of everything. Everything. So it's a transformative message in that sense. But there's a second sense in which I mean that here for this morning, and that is it changes how we see. It changes our outlook. It changes not just what we profess, but how we assess things. The grid, how we see, how we then live out of that. As C.S. Lewis put it this way, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Taking us to our text here, Paul, thus far through the course of chapter 1, has been in the course of the introduction, and it's a standard kind of format that he's following there, the introduction there. And then he shifts to, you may remember over the last few weeks, he shares with the Philippians how he's been praying for them and, and what his passion is for them, what his concern is for them. And then he shifts from there to... Uh, an update. Here's I know you I know you want to know. There's this relationship between him and, the, and his audience, so that he knows they want to know how he's doing. And so he's explaining that. And we talked about this. I think it was last week. In essence, he's saying, no matter the circumstances, I will rejoice. And keep in mind, 
what those circumstances are. So that's a striking statement. No matter the circumstances, I will rejoice. No matter what has happened to me, no matter what is happening to me, no matter what looks likely to happen to me, I will rejoice. How can he say that? Because the gospel is a transformative message. It changes our outlook. It changes how we see. It deeply affects our perspective on the most basic things of life. It goes that deep. It's not a surface thing. It goes that deep. Changing our perspective on the most basic things of life. And we see that three ways here in this text. First, it changes our outlook on the goal to life, our view of life, and the path for life. The goal of life, our view of life, and the path for life, all, all are part of that outlook. They're changed, transformed by this message. All right, let's look at these things in turn. First, how the gospel changes our outlook on the goal of life. Verse 18 again. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Now clearly Paul is, is really putting a lot on Deliverance. It's what he's longing for. It's what he's looking towards. But what does he mean by that? This is a vital point. What does Paul mean when he says there in verse 19 that this is all going to turn out for his deliverance? What does he mean? He does not mean when you read the whole text, which we did a few minutes ago, when you read the, the whole thing, you think about it, Paul is not talking about release from prison or his imprisonment. He's not talking about an escape. He's not talking about being freed from the chains or possibly the sword. That's not what he's talking about. For Paul, deliverance in essence means what we could call a vindication. That is to say that he knows he will be found in favor, um, he will be found pleasing, he will be found faithful to God by God. You look at how he unpacks that there in verse 20 once he says that word deliverance. He is, he, to, for Paul to be delivered would be for Paul to go through this thing, this, this trying experience and this trial that awaits him before Caesar, unashamed, courageously, and honoring Christ no matter whether he lives or dies. That's how he sees deliverance that he would faithfully serve his Lord and Savior, his King, and not be tempted to be cowardly or timid or, or backing off in any way. That for Paul, you see, that's, you see how deeply transformative from the outset here that the gospel message is, that changing even what it would mean to be delivered. For Paul, being delivered is so much more than just being comfortable than convenience. So much more than that. Now how then does it come? How would this deliverance come? Well, he talks about this. He, he knows it's not going to come from within himself. He can't gin this up. Paul knows he, he cannot afford to underestimate the forces that are arrayed against him, earthly and spiritually, nor can he afford to overestimate his own resolve and ability. He knows, and you can see it there from what he says in, in verse 20, um, 
he knows that this deliverance can only come from God through the Spirit of God, specifically by the prayers of the people of God. And that's what he's asking for. Their prayers and the Spirit's supply, his help. You see, Paul is not fixated. He understands the goal to life is not power and influence or comfort and ease or approval and acclaim, but rather standing for his Lord. That is the goal of life. Standing for him, serving him, and relying upon him. That for Paul, because his outlook has been utterly changed, is the goal of life. And may it be ours. You live like that and you'll stand out. Paul did. We talked about this over the last few weeks. How even there in, while chained to this member of the uh, Praetorian Guard, the word is getting out, surely because Paul is he's not like any other prisoner, and the word is getting out about him. He's standing out even while he can't go anywhere. It reminds me of a, of a scene from uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress in that scene where Pilgrim and Faithful are going to Vanity Fair, right? If you're familiar at all with that. And, and they, they get there, and Bunyan tells us that um, they really stand out. They, they like sore thumbs to the crowd, to the populace that are attending the, the festival. Why? Because, and these are all metaphors. It's not meant to be taken at face value. These are all metaphors because their clothes are so different because they talk so differently, because they're not willing to buy what they're selling at the fair. And because of that, they stand out and cause all this hubbub and commotion. You live this way, you'll stand out. Do we? Do we stand out? What's our view? What's our goal? What's our goal? There are many good things, many good things to have as a goal, to, to be aspiring towards, to put your affections on. Many good things in this life. God-given things, wonderful things, by His hand. You know why He's given partly? To lead our eyes back to Him, to the giver. Those things are not to be lived for those are meant to be embraced and then to be part of our expressions of thanks to the one who's given them. He is the only ultimate goal. He is the only one that can ultimately satisfy as the goal. The gospel, you see, is a transformative message, changing even our very goal to life. You see how deep and fundamental this goes, what a shift it entails. That has a, a consequence in the next thing, and that is our view of life. How then we see things on a day-to-day -day basis, um, which takes us to the second point, the goal to life affecting our view of life, verses 21 and 20 through 23. For to me, listen to what Paul says here and how radical this is. Maybe you've heard this text read before. Let the astonishment of what Paul says in this first sentence of verse 21 wash over you. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. 
Okay, to live as Christ, what does he mean there? What does he mean by that? He's speaking of continuing here, of life here, ongoing, to live as Christ. What does that mean? It means fruitful labor, as Paul tells us. It means Christ-centered ministry. It means giving himself, giving ourselves over to serving him and in working alongside with others that lives would be transformed by gospel-focused, empowered ministry. To be able to, to see that, to, to witness that, to maybe even pray towards being a part of, of participating in that. Fruitful labor, which by the way can only be connected to fruitful living. Or as Jesus says in, in John 15, in the vine and the branches, Christ abiding. The branches only have their life in as they are connected to the vine, relying upon Him in this vibrant relationship with Him. To live is Christ. To die is gain. What on earth? What does that mean? Here's what I think this means. It means that all that has begun here is ongoing, continuing here, just, though with death, continues there. That relationship with Christ, whether you, if you live, it continues here. If you die, it continues there. Paul is trying to help us understand there is no interruption in that. There's no interruption there. It's not the end of everything. It's the ultimate destination of everything. It's all, it's the all, it is the all. And because there's no interruption, Paul then shows no hesitation. In fact, it's even more than that. That's an understatement to, show, to say he shows no hesitation because it's kind of like, well, that would be the second choice. No, what's his, pre his personal preference? He says that it would be far better for me to die and be with Christ in that unshielded, unfiltered, uninterrupted access to my Savior. It would be far better, far better for me to depart. And that image of departure is likely something along the lines of a, a, a sailing vessel going over the horizon. It's a stunning image. It's a stunning statement as he weighs the options whether I continue here or continue there. He's torn. He says he's hemmed in. He's boxed in. And we're so surprised by this. This doesn't sound like the way we think, does it? It's so surprising. I mean, the, it reminds me, in a way, of college searches. Um, you know, families that are caught up. This is completely hypothetical, of course. Co families that are caught up in, in college searches. It's a tough time. It's a tough thing, especially for that st prospective student, to be weighing that and to be talking about it with the rest of the family members. Because sometimes some of those options look, you know, I see pros here. I see pros here. I see cons here. I, how, you know, it's just tough. Because they don't oftentimes match up just so it's so easy. And I've, actually, I've heard of this. I, I read the books. I've heard of this. I don't think we're going to do this, but I've heard of this. Families just finally say, I give up. And they, 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 they flip a coin. It comes down to two choices. And they just, heck with it. Flip the coin. 
and then find themselves surprised as to how they feel when one particular side comes up. They weren't anticipating that. They weren't expecting how they... It's like that, I think, with how we hear Paul. We're surprised to hear this. We didn't see this coming. To be torn between these two things. Again, the gospel changes radically our outlook even on the extremities of life itself. Well, let me ask you this question then. In the application part of your, your outline here, see? And the number two is what you can write. Which would you choose? If, if it was, and it's interesting, by the way, as an aside here, that, that, that Paul seems to recognize that whether he lives or dies was not really in Caesar's hand. He's not saying it's in ultimately his either, but it's his Lord, the Caesar of Caesars, the King of the Kings. Okay, but if you could choose, if you could choose, which would you choose, to live or to die today, right this moment? Now, I have a follow-up question. Why? Why would you choose what you have chosen? Now, let me ask you this. If, if, you ch if you said, I choose to live, is that because you're so frightened of the prospect of death? Or is it because you're so attached to the temporal things of this life? Is that why you've chosen to live? if it was in your power to choose. Or going the other way, if you said, no, to die. Well, is, is that because things are now so hard? And you're on the verge of giving up. Is that why you're trending in, in that? You see, to see rightly would mean that we really, when prompted with that question, what would you choose, to live or to die, to see rightly as Paul is and is imploring us to see accordingly, we should feel hard-pressed. If we're seeing this in the right way, we should feel hard-pressed, not really sure which way to go because for the Christian, it's a win-win scenario. When you see it rightly, and that's the, the, what the, how the gospel transforms our view of everything, our outlook, even the most basic essentials, our view of life, which takes us to the last thing. The gospel transforms our goal to life, our chief end, if you will, our burning passion. It changes our view of life, how we see our days and their numbering, and it changes how then we make decisions our priorities, the path for life. Let's go on. I'm going to pick up back to verse 23, but now read a little further. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Okay, Paul, his path, how does he make decisions? 
How does he weigh the alternatives? What then becomes the thing, the tipping factor for him? The service of others. The service of others. Think with me. Even while Paul is there, in the circumstances and under the conditions that he is in, the pressing question upon his mind and heart is what would best serve the spiritual growth and deeper joy of my friends in Philippi as he's imprisoned awaiting trial, maybe execution in Rome. You see? Paul's top priority, the way he's weighing these things and his what he really is going to desire for and move towards and hope for is not about his needs, but theirs. I mean, you see how in the flow of the, his argument and what he's saying, just opening up, crack, opening up his heart, cracking open his chest for the reader, he says that though it would be far better for me to depart and to see Jesus face-to-face, never-ending, never-ending joy, and finally at rest, after all that he's been through, though that in his heart and as he weighs it would be far better, it yields because of the needs of others to what is more necessary. You see how the goal to life affects our view to life, which affects the path of life, that is to say our our perspective, our priorities, how we will then go about making decisions. He, he is convinced of this, he tells us. Which then he knows, well, it could then well lead to, if it unfolds in this way, praise to God. Praise to God through his readers, because, of course, we know that as he comes there and, and with his other partners in, in his ministry and they spend time together in that church, as, as a church there in Philippi, they together will be growing in their relationship one with another and with Jesus, growing in their sanctification, becoming more and more Christ-like, dying to sin and living to righteousness. And so it will be praise, glory and praise, as he says there. In verse 26, they'll have ample cause, but also something else. If Paul, in fact, is released, then there'll be all the more ample cause for glory and praise to Jesus because he has helped Paul as they've been praying to stand firm, to be courageous, and to honor Jesus whether he lives or dies. And with that, he's been released. So all of this ample cause for praise to God if their prayers be heard. Again, the goal to life affects the view of life and transforms the path for life, which then is shaped by service to others that is modeled and compelled by Jesus' to us, which you'll get into in chapter 2. I have a friend, and I'm not going to give you any names, but I have a, I have a dear, dear friend that I, I went to Covenant Seminary with in St. Louis and uh, for a period of, of time, he had the opportunity to serve as a member of the faculty uh, there. Now, you've got to understand, and Colin, I know, could speak to this as well. Remember, to, to, to be a part of that community, that faculty, is, is like, it's, it's, I don't know, what's a step below heaven, maybe? Right? Um, I mean, it's just so, these men are some of the most genuine, Jesus-loving, God-honoring men you, you will ever, 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 ever meet. So this is a fantastic atmosphere that my friend had to, to serve in. And what an opportunity as a young guy 
um, just having gotten his PhD. And, um, but, but the day came when another school came calling. Now, this school is nowhere near as well-known, nowhere near as poised for influence, and frankly was facing a lot of issues of division there in terms of the direction things were going to be going in that school and really in that denomination. Now, so for my friend, he was torn, hemmed in. It was going to be hard to leave where he was to go to a place like that, but they kept saying, we need you, we need you. And so he went. And we don't make decisions like that often enough based on a perspective and a set of priorities like that. I mean, think with me. We usually make our decisions according to what we feel is best for us. What will most trend towards our comfort and convenience? Paul is showing us a better way to ask what though it be far better in our eyes, one thing, to ask ourselves what is more necessary for the sake and needs of others, or even going further, for the advancement of the gospel, the cause of the kingdom, and the proclamation of Jesus. That's a whole nother way of seeing and living. And it's a better way. It's the way we were meant to live. The gospel is a transformative message, changing even our path for life. Let me, let me press into it give you another story that I hope will capture something of this. Rosaria Butterfield. I don't know how many of you are familiar with that name. Maybe once I start telling the story, you're like, oh, yeah, I have heard this. Rosaria Butterfield, as of 1999, was a tenured professor at Syracuse University, hostile to all things Christianity, and involved in a committed lesbian relationship. Her specialty of study was queer theory, a, a postmodern school of, of thought in many major universities today, having to do, of course, with certain aspects of homosexuality and the culture and the history and, and, and all that. That was 1999. Today, Rosaria Butterfield is the mother of four, a homemaker, and the wife of a Presbyterian pastor they lived together in Durham, North Carolina. You think there was a conversion here? Yeah, let me tell you some of her story, some of her own story, some of her quotes um, from an, as many interviews if you want to look this up, but this is a, a quotation from one of those. I tried to toss the Bible and all of its teaching in the trash. I really tried, she says, but I kept reading it. Reading it not just for pleasure, but reading it because I was engaged in a research program trying to refute the religious right from a lesbian feminist perspective. After my second or third, maybe fourth pass of the entire Bible, something started to happen. The Bible got bigger inside me than I. And it absolutely overflowed into my world. I really fought against it. Then one Sunday morning... No different from any other Sunday morning, I rose from the bed of my lesbian lover and an hour later I sat in the pew at Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. I went there very conspicuous of the fact that I didn't fit in, but I really had to confront this God. 
Now, what she didn't know was who was confronting who. And she did. And embracing Jesus, she found herself, here's another quote, a single ex-lesbian with a now-defunct Ph.D., those are very, the words that she uses in her recent book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, an English Professor's Journey into Christian Faith. Her conversion landed her into what she calls, her words, a complicated and comprehensive chaos. Summing it up, she said, This was my conversion in a nutshell. I lost everything but the dog. But she found life in Jesus. Now, how do you explain this? The gospel is a transformative message. That's how you explain it. It changes everything. Nothing is safe. Nothing is safe once it takes root. Slowly but surely, we are changed from the inside out. Not all at once, sometimes in fits and starts. Sometimes not nearly as fast as we would want. But it does. It does. The dead dryness gives way to green vibrancy over time. It deeply affects our perspective on the very basics of life. Our goal to life. Our view of life. Our path for life. Which sets us in the conflict. As Paul knew... As Rosaria Butterfield has found and is finding, it sets us into direct, head-to-head conflict with every other view in this world. Every other worldview, every other philosophy, every other religion. It sets us into direct conflict with everyone because head and shoulders over them all stands Jesus. As the way, the truth, and the life. as he reaches in deeper into us and pulls us up higher. And the longer we stay there, and the further we go with this, and the further it goes into us, the more our hearts will learn to sing and pray. So let's pray. Lord, those words that you speak in the book of Revelation, Behold, I am making all things new, are so good to hear. Not that you might, not that you're planning on it, not that you could, but that you are all creation and all your followers, the sure and certain hope Not just something in the distance. Not just something that we have to wait for, but something that is coming and has come now. Not complete, but real nonetheless. Even in how we see. Even in our outlook. And would you help us to see in the ways that we should, in the most basic ways that need to be overturned like the tables in the temple our goal and view and path of life. May we hear and acknowledge as we feel the disturbance that nothing is safe. 
And we thank you that nothing is safe. For we need to be disturbed. And we need to be set right. And we need to see more of you such that we would find ourselves singing with Paul. I will rejoice. In your name we pray. Amen.